This is part two of Psalm 18, a song of a grateful heart. As we saw last time, here in Psalm 18, David is rejoicing because God has triumphed over his enemies. In the superscription, it tells us that it is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. We have this exact superscription given to us elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of First and Second Samuel, where it details this actual event. Here we have David recording how God delivered him and rejoicing in God's abundant mercies. David's prayer embraces the entirety of God's work in both judgment and redemption. As we considered the first half of the psalm, we looked at verses 1 through 3, which gives us David's resolution. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David knows God's character because of the way God acts. And that's why he can invoke all of these uh, descriptions, rock, fortress, deliverer, etc., etc., all of these metaphors that have a military con uh, context because God is the one who protects, secures, and gives victory in battle. Also, we noted the repeated first-person possessive pronoun, my. Yahweh is personal to David. And so David is resolved to find protection in God. In verses 4 through 6, we have the retrospect. The retrospect in verses 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. And the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. David's retrospect in verses 4 through 6. We see that there's an overwhelming concern with death. He's experiencing the pangs of death, the sorrows of Sheol, etc., and so the threat of death is very real to David here because his enemies have surrounded him. And I challenged you last time to think as to what do we do when death or some other situation is pressing upon us? Do we cower in fear? Do we escape into denial? Do we resign to the inevitable? Or do we pray? That's what David does. As he has this retrospective here, he goes right to prayer. And he calls upon God. He knows who God is. He knows where he is to be found. And he knows how to address him. He addresses him to his ears. Knowing that God is not a deaf idol. He will hear the prayers of his people. And then we finished last time looking at uh, the rescue in verses 7 through 19. The rescue in verses 7 through 19. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundation of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick cloud, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. 
Then the channels of water appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord. At the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. We see a very dramatic and overwhelming answer to David's cry. Earthquakes, smokes, devouring fire could be volcanic, forest fire, meteor shower. Darkness, wind, thick clouds, thunder, head storms, hailstones, etc., etc. All of these things are acts of nature. And truly, acts of nature are acts of God. We saw that nature is not autonomous. It only does what God directs it to do. But it is not neutral because God directs it what to do. It is held in the hand of God. And when God exercises his wrath on David's behalf or on the behalf of any of his people, he will move heaven and earth to protect, to rescue the child of God who cries out to him for deliverance amid their enemies. You know, one of the problems we face today in the modern era is that we don't see God's judgment in nature today. And certainly, we're, we're, we're not going to discount the role of science. Science is important. It's a God-given uh, study that we should engage in and we should understand how the world around us works. But sometimes we have made a God out of science in the sense that we think that science has all the answers. No, science helps us to understand how God works and how God operates. But science in and of itself is not the answer. But we've replaced God with a God, a God of science. And so when we see nature at work and we default to the science, we fail to see that, wait a minute, this is God's judgment. This is God's hand. This is God at work. As the scriptures tell us, God's providence causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. And if God is sovereign over creation, he can unla la unleash its power at any moment as a direct expression of his will. And that's what David experienced. That's what we could experience. If only we actually cried out to God for deliverance, as we should. And while there was judgment for David's enemies, there was redemption for David. God reached down and sent for him, summoned him into his presence. He lifted him up out of the midst of his enemies and brought him into a broad place. Now we come to verse 20 through 29 and we see the redress. The redress in 20 to 29. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With, his, with, with the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute. You, for you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. You light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God 
I can leap over a wall. David is delivered because of his righteousness. Now the righteousness here consists of clean hands. His hands are, are, are not dirty, which represents a clean heart. He has kept Yahweh's ways or commandments. He is blameless because he has rejected iniquity. And notice the stress here is on obedience, on external actions. But those external actions do not preclude an internal attitude. As we see in Psalm 24.4, those who come into God's presence must have clean hands and a pure heart. The fact that his hands are clean demonstrates that his heart was pure. Now in verse 20, it states that Yahweh rewarded me according to my righteousness. And it seems to assert that God's deliverance was based upon David's performance. And so we ask, is this works theology that the Bible is presenting? Is this a grounds for David's pride and boasting? Well, we, ha we answer the question by looking at the larger context. In verses 28 to 30, David stresses God's mercy and grace. He declares the Lord is his salvation. David says he can only trust in him back in verses 1 through 3. So David's righteousness is not, look at what I've done, his righteousness is a response to God's grace. He only has a pure heart because of God's grace. He only walks in God's ways because of God's grace. He only rejects iniquity because of God's grace. And as well, this claim of a reward for righteousness is prophetic and exotological. David is inspired by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, as he writes, and he anticipates here the coming of the Messiah, the righteous one, who alone can confess, I was blameless before him. And so this isn't David saying that he is blameless, as much as David is prophetically declaring what the Messiah will say. Listen, David, the only righteousness David has is the righteousness given him by God. But what he's really doing here is he's looking forward, he's looking into the future, into a day yet still future for us when the Messiah will come and can say, I was blameless before him. And righteousness then will be consummated uh, in Christ who is who in his sinlessness is our righteousness, and who imputes or charges his righteousness to us by faith alone. So because he, is with, because he has the covenant with God, the Davidic covenant, the uh, land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and because he's looking for that new covenant, David says, David says here that he receives the reward of God's deliverance according to the cleanness of my hands. The cleanness of his hands symbolizes observed purity because he kept Yahweh's ways. And by keeping Yahweh's ways, it kept himself from iniquity. Now how does David know good and evil? They are defined as God's judgments and statutes in verse 22. When you know God's statutes, when you know God's judgments, you'll be able to discern between good and evil. See, to have clean hands is not enough to simply abstain from evil. To have clean hands, you have to be doing the will of God. And again, you say, Pastor, how do I know the will of God? And the simple answer is this. Open those pages of Scripture and search out 
where it says, thou shalt do this or thou should not do that. Right there in the commands of Scripture, we find revealed very plainly God's will. So before we worry about God's will for this, that, or the other thing, how about we observe the will that he's already revealed to us? How about we begin to walk in his ways? And I ask, are you walking in his ways? Are you walking in obedience? Are you following the commands that he has laid out? Or are you negotiating those commands in your own mind? Well, this one I can do because it's not too difficult, but this one's too difficult. I'm not even going to worry about that. Well, then your hands aren't clean, which means your heart isn't clean. You're still walking in iniquity. Having meditated upon God's deliverance, David now addresses God directly, revealing the true source of his claim to righteousness. God is merciful to the merciful. He's blameless to the blameless. He's pure to the pure. See, it's the merciful, we're told, by Jesus himself, who will receive mercy. Mercy is a reflection of God's covenant love. Moreover, to the blameless, God is not going to impute blame. The word blameless here doesn't mean sinless, but it means sound or innocent. Okay, David had been proven innocent of any wrongdoing in this case. Doesn't mean he didn't have a sin nature, but that he had found forgiveness in God and had forsaken his sin. Again, Jesus reflects this thought in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Matthew 5, 8. David promises that God will be pure to the pure. So basically, here's how it works out. How you are is how God's going to be with you. Think about that. How you are is how God is going to be with you. So whatever you dish out, expect God's going to dish it back out to you. Think about that the next time you decide to sin or do evil. To those morally and spiritually separated to Yahweh, He will show Himself in a separated, exclusive relationship. The merciful, the blameless, the pure are all who humble themselves. The devious, God's going to be shrewd and out with them. See, human pride will fall and fail. God will bring down the haughty looks. From these verses we learn that David's previous claim to righteousness does not contradict his sense of humility. God saves the humble and judges the haughty. Therefore, David must have been the humble, in fact, if God saved him. See, the humble learn that all they have is a gift of grace alone. So David now meditates upon God's grace, and that arms him for battle. It is Yahweh who illumines him. He is his light in the midst of darkness. David is acknowledging here, that everything he knows and does comes by way of divine revelation. That should be our, uh, our same attitude. That what we do, we do by divine revelation. Well, God's not given any new revelation. Yeah, I know. He hasn't given any new revelation today. But you know what he has given us? Divine revelation in his word. That's what we're supposed to walk by. That's what we're supposed to live by. That word will strengthen us in the day of darkness. It'll strengthen us on the battlefield. It'll help us to acknowledge that it is God who strengthens us to run against an army or to leap over a wall, or to, rather, in, the, in modern vernacular, to scale the defense of a besieged city. Now, verse 30 to 45, we have the recapitulation. As for God, his ways are blameless. 
The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He sets me upon high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a a bow of can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs towards me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out of the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. And as soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. God's way and God's word shield David and all who trust in him. And so God is is both his strength for the battle and his protection in the battle. God is his rock, his refuge, his fortress. The God who is David's strength gives him strength. Furthermore, the Lord who is perfect makes David's way perfect. He gives David speed and security like that of a deer in a high place. He trains David to make war with bows of bronze. He gives him a shield of salvation. He delivers him from his enemy's spears and arrows. Why? The Lord does this because he himself is a man of war. You see, God supports his man. His right hand held David up. That's the hand of power and authority. You know, paradoxically, it is God's gentleness or humility that makes David great and keeps him from falling. We have the living God here at work. And where, and where God works, there's an uncanny combination of authority and humility. He's given David all this authority. Why? Because David is humble. And this is really fully expressed in Jesus' ministry. God, out of his abundant grace, equipped David for battle, assures him of victory. He offers the same to us today through Christ. Through his word, he illumines our darkness. He shows us where the real battle is going to be fought against Satan and his host of darkness. And as we see in Ephesians 6.12. He arms us with spiritual weapons and teaches us how to use them. Ephesians 6.13-18. He grants us authority and humility. He keeps us secure in himself. His kingdom is at war with Satan's kingdom. And we, like David, are soldiers in that army. By God's work within him, David advanced the kingdom. He routed the enemies, pursued them, overtook them, destroyed them. The sequence of verbs here describes total victory. And once he overtook his enemies, he delivered a mortal wound. He smite them, shattered them. They fell under his feet. They didn't surrender, they died. But David's victory was Yahweh's victory. And that's why he continues to praise God and say, He armed me with strength for the battle. See, it wasn't David who broke the enemy, it was God. The point here is clear. David fights only as God gives him the strength and the victory. And that's why the Lord was his rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. And what was true for David must be true for us. We conquer only in Christ. He is the one at God's right hand interceding for us. 
And although in this world we may experience the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Romans 8.37 We're not the victims. Rather, we're going to be the victors. Finally, we come to verse 46 through 50 and David's reassurance. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. Exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise against you. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his kings and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Notice how David turns to worship. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. David is humbled before his power and exalted in his love in order that he could fall at his feet in adoration. And as David calls for God to be exalted, he recapitulates in verses 47 through 48 the mighty works which he has seen. It was God who saved and delivered. The victory was won only because of the outstretched hand of God. Remembering what God has done, David vows praise. Therefore, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord. See, his worship is a witness to what God has done. The goal of our salvation is that of worship. Joining with that mighty heavenly chorus in the praise to the living God. Oh, that the church would be a worshiping church. Oh, that salvation would lead us to a celebration of who God is and what He has done. Oh, that we would no longer simply limp through a liturgy, but rather that we might pour out our praise to the Lord and devotion from our hearts. The psalm ends on a confessional note. Great deliverance He gives to His King. From this text, we see in this psalm's conclusion the gospel story. Another David has come, that is Jesus Christ. He's defeated God's enemies and he has established his reign. Even now, people around the world come to him. And as a result, one day there will be a great chorus of praise that will ascend to the very throne of God. And so, our final thoughts on Psalm 18 reveals that the God who controls nature and history, who establishes his king and kingdom, is not absent from the present, he's not distant in our time of need, but indeed very near. He is not aloof, but active. He is not powerless, but powerful. And in His Son, Jesus Christ, His kingdom is coming. Light is going to break through the darkness. The devil is going to tremble. And we are awaiting that future glorious day. And so may we pray, Thy kingdom come. Father in heaven, Lord, as we learn from Psalm 18, you are a powerful God who will protect and defend His people. I thank You, Father, that we are Your people. That, Father, we are those whom You protect. We can flee to You, run to You, find safety in You, hide in You, find a respite, Lord, in the midst of a storm, find a fortress in the midst of a battlefield, you're always there for us. I thank you for the victory that's been won in Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that he's given us his righteousness. But, oh, Father, I pray that we might take the righteousness we've been granted 
and that we might in turn be righteous. That we wouldn't just be righteous in position, but that rather, Father, we might be righteous in practice. That we might walk in your ways. That we might keep your statutes. That we might have clean hands and a pure heart. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen.